Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. It was August 26th, a year ago, that we were in 2 Kings. And we were in 2 Kings 14, and we came across verse 25 that said, He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. And then also we took a look at 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles 24, 19, it says, And yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, though they testified against them, though the prophets testified against Israel, they would not listen. And so based on that, we said, well, let's go see what the prophets were saying. And we went and looked at Hosea, and we looked at Micah, and we looked at Amos, because those were the particular prophets that fit into this particular juncture of Second Kings. And that took us a year to do. But what we did see was that the prophets all speak with one unified voice. They predicted the incursion of Assyria. They predicted that the northern tribes were going to go into the Assyrian captivity. And they also warned that the southern tribes who should have learned a lesson from the way that God was treating his people in the north, they should have learned a lesson about God's severity. But instead they continued on their path of following after other gods, of the rich being unfair to the poor, of not following God's law, of just culturally being godless when they were in fact supposed to be a holy people, a separate people. And so God is going to bring about the Babylonian captivity, and that's really what the last chapters of 2 Kings is all about. 2 Kings 15, which is where we're going to pick up tonight, is a real important juncture because now the prophets have been prophesying to Israel and Judah. They are without excuse. But we're also going to be introduced to King Uzziah. King Uzziah looms very large in the history of Israel, and we will spend the majority of the night talking about him, and maybe we'll get through the rest of chapter 15. Come chapter 16, we're going to see the last king of the northern tribes of Israel. And so we're right at that juncture. And then the balance of 2 Kings has to do with Judah in particular, and the uh, prophetic messages against Judah. And we're going to bump into Isaiah. As I've said many times, Isaiah is a contemporary of the prophets that we've already looked at. And we're even going to look at a little Isaiah tonight. And so that gives us some idea how those biblical pieces all fit together. It also gives us some idea of the time frame. We're talking about the middle 700s right about now. So let's start at the beginning of chapter 15 of 2 Kings. We're going to start with information. We're going to start with history. And then we're going to get all theological on you 
and that'll pretty much be an evening. And then if I'm in the mood, I'll also get pedantical and poetical. We don't know, but we're definitely going to get theological. 2 Kings 15, verse 1. Depending on your translation, it'll say, In the 27th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, then Azariah, the son of Amaziah, became king of Judah. Now this name, Amaziah, is also the name for Uzziah, who is also called Uzzah. So he's got several different names, but it's the same person. He was a mere 16 years old when he became king. We read that in verse 2. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. So here's what we know. He's in the line, in the lineage of David. And we know that in the 52 years that he's going to be ruling, there is an entire succession of kings in the north. As we've seen, there is never a really good king in the north. And the succession of kings is everything from one fellow who only reigns for one month. And people are killing the kings and taking over the throne. There is a lot of upheaval going on in the north. And all of that time, for 52 years, Uzziah is reigning in the south. Uzziah is very successful. That's the next thing we're going to find out about him. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Now, if you remember a year ago, if you remember Amaziah, Amaziah did follow essentially after the law of God, but he did not take down the high places. He did not destroy the groves. And there were a lot of kings in the south who were said to be good kings, but they also tripped up. And so that seems to be the case with this Uzziah. He walked after the Lord as his father Amaziah had done. Only, verse 4, only the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house while Jotham, the king's son, was over the household and judging the people of the land. As you may recall, that was one of the main jobs, one of the essential jobs of being a king was that when the people had a dispute, they would bring it before the king, and he would adjudicate between the people. And since he could not do that, being a leper, since he was unclean, he lived in a separate house, and his son was the one who did the adjudicating. And so you may ask, well, why did God put leprosy on him? Well, we're going to find out in just a moment what that was for, why that happened. The Lord struck the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house while Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, judging the people of Israel, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the house of David, and Jotham, his son, became king in his place. So that's all that Second Kings tells us about Uzziah. But it also assumes that you know the backstory on Uzziah. 
the ones who were writing these chronicles of the kings, assumed that the people they were writing to would know the legend and the story of Uzziah. One part of it is listed for us in 2 Chronicles. So turn there. Turn to 2 Chronicles 26. Here he is called Uzziah. We're introduced to that name, but the details are identical, so we know that we're talking about the same person. Amaziah had been defeated by Joash, and when he died, Uzziah then became king. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. And he built Aloth, and he restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah. This is one of the few references to this particular prophet, but this is not Zechariah who will prophesy later. When the Jews return to Israel and rebuild the temple, that's the time of Haggai and Zechariah in the Old Testament. But Zechariah is a very common name, so he was given a prophet by the name of Zechariah. In fact, there was a king in the north whose name is also Zechariah. So this is a reference to this particular prophet who we really don't know anything about. The Old Testament doesn't tell us much about him. But as long as Uzziah paid attention to what Zechariah told him, who had, you read here, who had understanding through the vision of God. He had insight into God. And as long as Uzziah paid attention to him, everything went well for him. So he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And now we get a list of some of the ways that God prospered Uzziah. Now he went out and he warred against the Philistines, and he broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built the cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines, and God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and the Meunites. And the Amorites also gave tribute to Uzziah, and his fame extended to the border of Egypt because he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem and at the corner gate and at the valley gate, and at the corner he buttressed and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness, and he hewed many cisterns, and he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and in the fertile fields, because he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, prepared by Jael, who is the scribe, and Maasei, the official, and under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. 
So the total number of the heads of the households of the valiant warriors was 2,600, and under their direction was an elite army of 3,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against his enemies. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for his army shields and spears and helmets and body armor and bows and sling stones. And in Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men that would be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows or casting great stones. And hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Okay, so what do we know so far about Uzziah? He starts at 16, God is with him, and he becomes incredibly powerful and incredibly wealthy. He's got a tremendous amount of land and soil and animals. He's got a huge standing army, and he's got all these inventions, the engines of warfare, so that if anyone attacks the walls of Jerusalem, he can conquer them without his army even having to go out. So he's really, really successful, and his fame is spread all the way to Egypt. He's doing great, and when people do great, they fall for one of the greatest sins that anybody can encounter, and it is so common that we see it even to this day, and that is the sin of encroachment. What that means, what encroachment means, actually Tom and I had to, at one time, learn this definition and memorize it. But what encroachment means is to take upon oneself without leave or warrant. That was the definition. It's still stuck in my head. But essentially what it means is he became so high and mighty that he forgot that even though he was a very successful king, he was just a king. And he took upon himself to go into the uh, temple of God and do the service of God that was particularly allotted to the priests. Only the sons of Aaron were allowed to go burn incense to God, but hey, I'm Uzziah, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I'm very famous. I'm very mighty. I'm very rich. I can do whatever I want. And once he was comfortable, and once he was fat and happy, and once everything is going his way, he forgets God. And yet God is the one who gave him all this power, all this might, all this reputation, all these animals, gave him a great name in the Middle East. And as soon as he had that, he forgot God. And that happens, like I said, all the time. It happens very, very frequently in America that people become comfortable, that God has protected us for all this time, that God has given us this great nation and a land of plenty, and then we forget about him. We forget about his counsel or his rules or his standards. We throw off God and say, we'll do it our own way. But the Bible is full of examples of people who said, we'll do it our own way, and God punishes them. And so the punishment now that we're going to read that happened to Uzziah until the day of his death was that he became a leper from God because he did something the priests were supposed to do. And really, if you read this passage, it's easy to think, What a mean God. What a completely arbitrary thing. It's just incense. I mean, it's just lighting something and taking it to God. After all, he was trying to honor God. 
he went into the temple and he burned incense to God what's wrong with that well what was wrong with it was he wasn't allowed to do that he encroached on God by saying I will now do something and I'll just assume that it'll be okay with you I know what you said I know what the restriction is but you're going to accept it anyway because I mean well how often have we heard that people who uh, will do what they want and claim that they're doing it for God and after all God will accept it or forgive them because after all they mean well except that God is going to punish the king, the powerful king, the mighty king, punish him until the day he's dead so that he has to live in a separate house by himself for the rest of his life because of one mistake. So here's what happens. Verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. Now, again, I've got to go back to what was the corruption? Come on, he was honoring God. Come on, he was going to the temple. He was burning incense to God. Where is the corruption? The corruption was in the fact that he did something that God did not allow him to do. Yes, you're the king. Yes, you're powerful. Yes, you're rich. Yes, you're the ruler in the land. But I will restrict you. You can't do this. And if that sounds familiar, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And God's saying, sure, eat of any tree. Any tree, have the fruit, it's all your. That tree, can't touch that. Just don't touch that one. So what do Adam and Eve do? Touch that one. Because that's the nature of human beings. As soon as God says, don't, we think, well, I'm going to. Have you ever watched kids playing? You don't have to teach them this. Children just know it instinctively. Here's this toy. I don't care about that toy. I don't care about that toy at all. What? You like that toy? Give me my toy. I want my toy back. Right? She works in a daycare. It's, it's instinctive. It's built into us that the minute someone says, don't do that, we go, I have to do that. Don't have any cookies before dinner. I'm putting the cookie jar up here. What do we want? That jar, that cookie. We can't even think until we get that cookie. Because that's just instinctively us. And it was Uzziah. He could have been happy and content for the rest of his life as a powerful and well-known famous king. But he wanted the one thing God said, that doesn't belong to you. And he did it anyway. Because he got puffed up in pride. So his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Again, was he unfaithful to God? All he did was light incense in the temple. That's not faithlessness. That would seem like faithfulness. But not in God's eyes. Because God specifically gave particular offices to particular people. There were prophets. And as long as Uzziah paid attention to his prophet, he was fine. There was kings. He was king, but he wasn't priest. There were priests. The priest's job was to go and intercede to God. The prophet's job was to hear from God. The king's job was to rule over God's people. 
And those were very clearly delineated jobs, very clearly delineated offices. And God was serious about don't encroach. So even though he was just going to burn incense, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah, the king. And they said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. It is for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. Look at verse 19. But Uzziah had a censer in his hand for burning incense, and he was enraged. Who are you to talk to me? I'm the king. I've got a censer of incense right here in my hand. I don't care what you think. It only matters what I think, because I'm the king. And then God intercedes. And while he was enraged with the priests, the priests, by the way, were correct. They were right. He was wrong. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. I got an email this week from a, a girl, and she started by asking me, her first question was, do you believe that God is in charge of everything? Just a short email. And I wrote back and said, yes, absolutely. Yes, indeed, God's in charge of everything. And I thought, well, there, that's the end of that email exchange. I'll go on to the other 80 emails I've got to do today. And then she wrote back almost instantly and said, yeah, I gathered that from reading on your website. Oh, and, <laughs> and then she accused me of preaching hyper grace. That's what she called it, which I just felt good that she didn't call me a hyper Calvinist. So, all right. So she accused me of hyper grace. And then she said this very emotional argument that is very common Whenever you say God is in charge, God's sovereign, God is ruling over his creation, the next thing she said is, so you're telling me that if a baby got sick or if a 20-year-old child is killed in a car accident, that that's the will of God? And I wrote back and said, yeah, <laughs> yes, that's either the will of God or it's senseless, and it's purposeless, and God either couldn't control it, or he just didn't. He capriciously decided that that baby was going to be sick, and that young man was going to die, and he just turned his back on them. That's a mean God. But if he's in charge, then the evil that happens in this world has purpose. It's part of the function of how God operates in the world. And these things, the wages of sin, I wrote to her, the wages of sin is sickness and death. There's sin in the world, and that's why there's so much death in the world, and so much sickness in the world. And yes, bad things happen, and they happen because people are sinning against God. Well, so here's that argument. Can God, in fact, make people sick? 
or when people get sick, is that some sort of aberration or is that the power of the devil, which is the superior power apparently over God because God just couldn't protect these people. These people got sick anyway. Can God, in fact, be powerful enough to put sickness on people to correct them or to punish them? Well, we've read right here that God put a sickness. He put a skin disease. He put leprosy on a powerful person and drove him into his own private house for the rest of his life for the simple act of burning incense. So God is in charge, and God is sovereign, and God does control sickness. If God didn't control sickness, Jesus couldn't walk around taking sickness away. What were you going to say? I was going to ask, why was it God's will for Uzziah to sin that way? Well, we read that he got lifted up in pride. And I think every man, every human being, is automatically less than God. There's no perfect people. And so I think in the will of God, in the sovereignty of God, that he was demonstrating that even the king is not above his rules. Even the rich and the powerful have to operate under God's standard. And I think that was the point that he was clearly making in Uzziah's case. So he didn't keep him from sinning so that he could be an example? I think so. Because we do read when Abraham and Sarah were in, I forget the city they were in. If anybody knows, tell me. But uh, the king in that city wanted Sarah. And God came to that king and said, I kept you from sinning against me and taking Sarah. And so God is even in control of making sure that things like Sarah having a baby with Abraham and only Abraham because that's where the promised seed had to go was to her child. There couldn't be any ambiguity about it. It couldn't potentially be the king of a foreign nation. It had to be through Abraham. And God specifically says, I kept you from sinning against me. So I would say that even the sin of this creation serves God's ultimate purpose. Let's go all the way back since you asked. Here's a a basic question. What was Satan doing in the Garden of Eden? Why was he there? God allowed him. God made a garden on the earth. He put a man and a woman in it. And then he put Satan in it. Well, God's At the end of the book of Revelation, God's going to put Satan into an abyss and then ultimately into the lake of fire. Why didn't he do that back then? God knew what was happening there. Well, let's even go further back than that. Why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? And then say, don't touch it. He had to give them something they could touch to sin against him. So what is the cause or the purpose of sin? It's God's glory so that when he sends his son to redeem a people, he redeems a people who desperately need a savior. If they were continuing in their neutral state, not having any sin against themselves, they don't need a savior. And if they have unfettered access to the tree of uh, life, then they're just going to live forever in that neutral state. But if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there, 
and they partake of it and their eyes are opened and they realize they've sinned, that's perfectly in keeping with God's ultimate plan. And his plan is redemption so that all the glory, all the honor goes to him. And that mankind can't say, well, I had something to do with it. You did 95%, but I've got my 5% I kicked in. It all is going to redound to the glory of God. So I would say that sickness and sin and uh, even the rebellion of this world serves God's larger purpose. That was a long answer to a short question. But does it make sense? It does. It, it seems that anytime time... Since we're so sinful that any time we don't sin, it must be because God intervenes and helps us not to sin. A great statement. I, you get credit for that one. I'm going to say that. <laughs> I'm going to say that again for the people on the internet who may not have heard it. She said we're so sinful that any time we don't sin, it has to be God preserving us and keeping us from sin because that's our natural proclivity is towards sin. But, of course, even in those times when we, quote, unquote, don't sin, we're still sinful beings. So the Bible would say that the plowing of the wicked is sin. You know, even doing something normal every day, sin. Yes, sir? And the obverse side of that is people who email you and say, are you saying that, uh, you know, those are people who don't believe they have any sin or... Just a couple parking tickets. Right. They they just are not conscious of their sin. And that's the vast majority of people. People think that they're generally okay. Yes, they might do bad things once in a while, but they're generally pretty good. And so their concept of God is based around the assumption that God also thinks they're pretty good. Realizing that they're pretty good is God actively restraining the evil that they could be. Exactly. And that lack of realization is why we have a difference with them. (laughs) They just don't realize how deeply depraved they really are. And that even their presumption of being good is part of their sinfulness. Pride, ego, is all sinfulness. Yes, Alex. When people do that, sometimes I'll double down and say, God loves us so much, he wants everyone to have a chance, right? Say, a chance to be saved from who? Right. Why did he make a hell that he had to save people from? What kind of God do you believe in? That he made this big pit and kicks his children in there that he loves? Yeah, when you get down to it, logically, there's really only one conclusion you can come to which is that everything serves his greater purpose. And that's everything. And by the way, for those of us who believe that, it's a tremendous comfort. Because if God is not absolutely in control of absolutely everything, then that does mean that terrible things happen for no reason at all. They just happen. Purposeless evil. Purposeless evil. And God either could have changed it and didn't. It was funny because this person who wrote to me also referred to God as Almighty. <laughs> and I, in one of my responses, I said, how mighty is Almighty? If he's got all the might, you don't have any. So people use that language. 
God Almighty without even thinking about what that means. God purposefully gave himself the proper name, God Almighty, so that we would know that he sees himself as having all the power, all the authority, and that there's none left over for us. So then everything that happens serves his greater purpose. It is not just uh, purposeless evil, I said to quote Jeff. Okay, the last 10 minutes are your fault, Laurel, so I want you to know that. So pride is Uzziah's problem, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah. The king, and they said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. That's a genuine wake-up call. Once God smites you, it's like, I'm going to the temple. I'm burning incense. What? God made me a leper? I'm leaving. I'm going out of here as quickly as I can. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. And now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first and last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings. For they said, he is a leper, and Jotham, his son, became king in his place. So since Isaiah is mentioned here, turn to the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 6. You probably know this passage. It's one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, misused very widely and broadly. We'll talk about the misuse and the proper context of this passage. But it starts with, In the year that King Uzziah died. So this again gives us a good sense of where Isaiah's prophecies fit in the history of the Old Testament kings. At the end of Uzziah's life, when he died a leper, that was the time that Isaiah's prophetic career was beginning. And in fact, as we continue through the book of 2 Kings, Isaiah is going to show up. And Isaiah is going to be quoted. So, so Isaiah looms very large now. We'll be spending a fair amount of time 
looking at the things that Isaiah said because he starts his preachment to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has run its succession of kings. The incursion has happened of the Assyrians. They've gone into the Assyrian captivity never to return to their land to this very day. And Isaiah is essentially saying to the southern kingdom, look what God did to them. Shouldn't you straighten up? And that is going to be God's reason for treating the southern kingdom even more harshly than the northern kingdom. Because like two erring sisters, the one was caught in her whoredoms and the other didn't change her ways. And we saw that throughout the prophets. So now we're in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. The NASB says lofty and exalted. The King James says high and lifted up. With the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim stood above him. So for the rest of this verse, just use your imagination and imagine what this would be like. Because King Uzziah dies, and there's a kind of a clue here that Isaiah was really invested in King Uzziah. And when King Uzziah dies, Isaiah sees the real king. He sees who's really in charge. And he sees him as high and lifted up. But then there's these angelic creatures. Now, there are people who think that they're just going to run into God's presence. Hey, God, it's me. I'm so glad you waited. I'm here. I've got a few things to say. Let me tell you my opinion. I mean, people who have no shame or fear in talking for God or about God or the things of God, people who have no humility in the things of God, and yet the angels that are round about him cover their eyes and cover their feet in the presence of the holy God. And that should tell us something because God can present himself to Isaiah any way he wants. He can present himself as, I'm the master and you're the slave, or I'm, I'm just a guy on a footstool, or I'm, and he doesn't do that. He sets himself up on a throne and he has angels crying out about his holiness and even they cover their eyes, their faces, their feet before him. And so that ought to give us some sense of, of worship, some sense of, how high and holy, lifted up, righteous and different God is when we approach him. And yet that one would beckon us to approach him. It's really quite magnificent. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his love. It's not what it says, is it? And yet there are so many people who think, well, that's it. That's God's primary attribute, love. God's loving. He's all loving. He's constantly loving. And that's part of the reason that so many people encroach on God. It's because they think, I'll be fine. He loves me so much. They go around quoting John 3.16. You know, God so loved the world. That means he just 
opened his arms so wide to love me. When Jesus died, he died on a cross with his arms open wide, waiting to give the whole world a big hug because he loved everybody so much. These are all things I've heard said because people start with the assumption that God is just love, love, love. And as I've pointed out many times, the same sentence construction that says God is love, that's John's writing. Peter writes it the same way and says our God is a consuming fire. And both of those are true. And so when we talk about the attributes of God, the characteristics of God, this is something I learned from A.W. Pink 25 years ago. In his book, The Attributes of God, he emphasized that love is not the primary attribute of God. And the way that he proved that it's not God's primary attribute is that he put the word love, that attribute, before all the activities of God. And you can talk about God's loving kindness or his loving grace. You can talk about God's loving long-suffering. But then you have to talk about God's loving wrath and God's very loving. And I love you, mean it. Get over here, you knucklehead. Noogies for you. His, his loving judgment and putting people in hell and the lake of fire where the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever in love. If love is his primary attribute, you have to say that. So that is why Pink argued that God's primary attribute is holiness. Even in the book of Revelation, when it talks about how the kingdom is ultimately going to be established, it says that the bowls, the cooking vessels, and even the reins on the bridles of the horses are all going to be holiness to the Lord. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, start right off with our Father who art in heaven. Holy is your name. You don't start with, dear God in heaven, you're so loving. It's holiness of God. That's his primary attribute. Now, like I said a minute ago, God can present himself to Isaiah any way he wants. God can be in his splendor, in his kingdom, any way he wants to be. And the way he wants to be is to have shame-faced seraphim. Boy, that's hard to say. Shame-faced seraphim around him crying out that he's holy. That's God's intention. So now we can talk about God's holy love and his holy grace, his holy kindness, and his holy wrath, and his holy judgment, so that all the attributes of God flow from that central issue which is that God is holy and then knowing that God is primarily holy he can then expect us to be holy he is separate he is different he is not like the world he is sinless he is perfect he is majestic and therefore he calls his people to be separate to not be like the world to live lives that reflect the fact that they belong to a holy God. And that makes complete sense. So these angels cry out to one another. Saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds. Trembled at the voice of him who called out. Again, use your imagination. 
This is what Isaiah is seeing. God on his throne and these angelic creatures and they're crying about his holiness and the voice crying about his holiness causes the very foundations to shake. Mm. Foundations of the house that God made. The foundations of the house that God made. Isn't that incredible? Mm. Yeah. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It's kind of like the question that people ask sometimes when they're trying to trip us up. They'll say, well, if God is sovereign and he's almighty, can he make a rock that even he can't pick up? Because they think they catch us because they can't figure out the conundrum. Since their pea brain can't figure out the conundrum, then neither can God. And, of course, the answer to that is, sure, God can make a rock he can't pick up, and then he'll pick it up. And there's no problem there because God is perfectly comfortable being absolutely sovereign in ways that our small Aristotelian logical minds simply don't grasp. So, the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. That's the right answer. Woe is me. This is God. God is high and mighty and holy, and he's got... Holy angels crying out about his holiness. And then there's me. I'm in big trouble here. And I don't think enough people have that attitude. Mm -hmm. That God is so high and holy and lifted up. They forget to worship him. They forget to recognize his separateness. That he's different than us. And they encroach on him. And they think, oh, it'll be all right. I'll just burn some incense. Woe is me, for I am ruined because of all the sins he could have listed. Of all the sins he could have come up with, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. The first thing that shows me is God cares how you talk. God cares what you say about him. God cares how you use your language. And here he says, I am a man who just by my very speech, just the things I've said in my life are enough to judge me forever. Forget all the things I've done. Forget my generally sinful estate. Just the things I've said are enough to ruin me forever. Is there anybody in this room who doesn't feel the same way? Because you know you've said things and thought, gee, I hope God didn't hear that. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I'm now standing before the real king, not King Uzziah. I'm now standing in front of the Lord of the hosts of heaven and earth, the one who's in charge of absolutely everything, and he is profoundly holy, and I am profoundly not. So woe is me. Now the next thing that God does is fascinating to me, because here's the situation, and it's the same situation that every one of us find ourselves in. Here's high and holy and righteous and perfect God, and then there's you. And how are you going to get to that God? How are you going to stand in the presence of that God and not be judged? What are you going to do about the fact that you have offended 
that high and holy righteous God? Well, the answer is nothing. You can't do anything. You can't do anything. You're a man of unclean lips. You're a sinful person. You're a depraved person standing in front of the holy God. You can't do anything. So the actor now is God. Because God has to do something to make it okay between him and you. And you can't do anything. And yet God, thank God, takes on the role of intercessor and makes it okay for Isaiah to talk to him. And think about it for a moment. Isaiah is not even allowed to talk to God. Again, people thinking they're going to charge into the presence of God. And they're going to say, hey, God, I've got some things to say. I told you several weeks ago about the video of the atheist who said, if God exists, when I stand in front of him, I'm going to tell him a few things. And I'm going to start with, how dare you? And I'm going to... And he listed all his complaints with all the things that went wrong in this world. Because he just assumed his concept of God was so low that he just assumed that when he was in the presence of God, he could just spout off and tell God what he thinks. Here's a... I know, that's, that's exactly right. Here's Isaiah standing before God. He's a chosen prophet of God. Here's a prophet of God standing before God, and he can't say a word. You can't talk to that God until God does something for him. So then, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. The very fact, by the way, that the angel had to take it with tongs means it's real hot. <laughs> exactly. Picks it up with tongs and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. God had to do something of an intercessory type so that he could even speak to God and he burned away the sin and the iniquity so that Isaiah, the chosen prophet of God, could even speak to God. That's how holy God is. You don't even have any right to speak to him unless there's an intercessor, unless someone gets between you and him and does something about your sin problem. And that ought to resonate with you because that's precisely and exactly what Christianity is all about. That we have an intercessor who did something for us to make it okay between us and that high and holy God. So then the next verse is the question, who shall I send? And Isaiah, now okay to talk, says, here am I, send me. And I can't even tell you how many sermons I have heard in my life that have made Jeff laugh. I can't even tell you how many times... I've heard people say, this is God sending preachers out into the world, giving them the gospel to go preach. Here am I, send me. Here I. Except that when Isaiah says, here am I, send me, God says, good, go and tell them that they're condemned and they're in trouble and it's going to go bad for them and I'm going to close their eyes and their mouth and they're not going to understand anything you say. That's the context. The context is, go give them a condemnatory message. So let's read it. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, 
whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? By the way, the us there is really interesting. Who shall go for us? I think we see a little Trinitarian doctrine there. And then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. Okay, so you are going to go. I am going to send you. You are going to be a prophet to the southern kingdom primarily. And here's what you're going to go and tell them. Say, keep on listening, but don't perceive. Isn't this exactly what Jesus accused people of when he came to the planet? That their eyes couldn't see, that their ears couldn't hear, that their heart had waxed cold, they had turned against God. The very prophecy of Isaiah was true in Jesus' time. Go and say, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. (sighs) This is such tough theology. Because this is God saying, go to people and tell them the truth. Tell them about me. Tell them what I'm going to do. Tell them about the Babylonian captivity. And they won't get it. So is God really, really sovereign? Does God give everybody a fair shot? Does God give everybody an equal chance to will whether or not they're going to decide for God? To understand the things of God? Not according to the Bible. God shuts up minds, shuts up hearts, closes eyes and ears. God makes sure that he reveals himself and his son to particular people who, according to the Bible, he chose before the foundation of the world. As difficult as that theology is for our mortal minds to grasp is exactly what the Bible keeps saying over and over and over. And let me put it in a modern contemporary context. My son and I were having a conversation in the car on the way here. And we were agreeing with each other that Hillary Clinton, at this moment, there's all this evidence, just evidence after evidence after evidence, plus there's all this history that she is not trustworthy, that she does lie. And there's all this stuff, and yet I saw a video the other day of all these people at a Hillary rally saying, well, it's true that she lies, and it's true that she's not trustworthy, but we're going to vote for her anyway, because after all, what's the choice? Trump? We can't have that. So we're going to go ahead and vote for Hillary. Who was it? Was it you, Alex? We had had a conversation about this, and we came to the conclusion that the same God that Paul was writing about When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, God is going to give them a strong delusion so that they will believe a lie and be damned, that that strong delusion seems to be alive and well in our land right now. Because God is making sure that people simply don't act rationally. But that's part of his sovereignty. Go, keep on listening, don't perceive, keep on looking, do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive and render their ears dull. That's God's proclamation telling Isaiah the prophet, go make sure they don't understand and they don't hear. Make their eyes dim lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Jesus quoted this. 
when he was asked, why do you speak in parables? He said, I talk in parables so that they won't understand. I talk in parables so that those who have the hearts and the minds that God has given them, the understanding, those people are going to get it. But the people who have dull ears and dull hearing and their hearts have waxed cold against the things of God, they're not going to understand what I'm talking about. And that's why I talk in parables. So even Jesus was giving credibility to Isaiah here. Then I said, verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without habitant and without inhabitant and houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord not this foreign army, but the Lord has removed men far away. How did he do it? We're going to find out as we continue in the upcoming weeks. We're going to find out that God did it by the hand of the Assyrians. And yet God is going to judge the Assyrians for the haughtiness with which they did what God wanted them to do. And so it is the Lord who is in charge of all these things, working through the agency of the Assyrian army. So the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Now, by the way, since he has asked how long, I think we can say, since this very section was quoted by Jesus, I think we can say that in Jesus' day, it still wasn't satisfied. He still hadn't brought the northern tribes back to their land. That hadn't happened. God promised it over and over and over again through all the prophets. I'm going to do it. All 12 tribes, bring them back, give them their land. They're going to have one king. The son of David is going to rule over them from Jerusalem. All these promises exist, but in Jesus' day, it still hadn't happened. And so they expected Jesus to do it. You're the Messiah. Are you going to do it? And so at the beginning of the book of Acts, they would ask him. The disciples said to him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do what all the Old Testament prophets have said that God is going to do? You are the Messiah. You've died. You're back again. You can't be killed again. Are you going to do it? When? And he said, not yet. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that God has placed in his own hand. So not yet. So I would argue that, that that is still hanging out there somewhere. In human history, there are still things that God has to do in order to accomplish all the promises that he's made in his word. So, last verse. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like the terebinth or the oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, and the holy seed is its stump. So once again, Isaiah is using that remnant language that we've become so familiar with, that God is going to punish Israel, that time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble, that God is still going to punish Israel, and he's going to keep a remnant which Paul argues about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that God is going to preserve a remnant of Israel. 
that Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, you that, are, you that are in Judea, then flee into the wilderness. There's always going to be a remnant. And so here's Isaiah one more time saying that the stump will remain when the tree is felled and the holy seed is its stump. So next week we will pick up right back in chapter 15 of 2 Kings and we'll begin to talk about Zechariah, the first king over Israel. And we'll look at the succession of kings who ruled over the northern tribes during the time that Uzziah was ruling for his 52 years in Judah. Got the game plan? Mm-hmm. Was that interesting? Yes. You better say yes. God's word is interesting. Mm-hmm. Any questions? When you read the story about that king, it reminded me a little bit about Herod in Acts 12. And I was wondering, uh, I'm sure you've thought about this, what, in what way, they seem to stand out, uh, how are they similar in, like, in the way God treated the king so abruptly and publicly and strikes him, you know, when he puts up with so much nonsense, you know, on a daily basis... That really stands out. Do you see anything about those instances? That- Only that the king has a greater responsibility. The king has a specific office, and there's only one king in Israel. And the offspring of David are required by God to live up to the standard of David, the man after God's own heart. And nobody did since David. And so I think the fact that the priests are held to a higher standard the same way that the uh, kings are held to a higher standard and the prophets are held to a higher standard. How often have we seen the prophets be punished by God because they didn't do what God said? And that carries all the way into the New Testament. James said, don't be many teachers because you're going to be held to a stricter judgment. And so God requires a certain standard from the people who are representing him. Make sense? Yeah. Anything else? I believe we're done here. Who would like to say our closing prayer? Well, then I'll do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you that we got back to 2 Kings. Your book is fascinating. Your word is so full of grand theology and great history. And we are shown time and time again what people are like and what you are like. So our prayer is that you will guide us, that you will guard us, that you will teach us your ways, and that you will continue to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears so that we can follow you more perfectly, so that we can understand what it is you're saying And so that we can be a testimony and a light in this world. The world does seem increasingly crazy. And the world is increasing its hatred for all things God and all things Christian. Mm -hmm. And we pray that you will protect us, take care of us, give us safe passage from here all the way home. And if the time comes that we have to stand up for you and your word, then give us the strength, give us the perseverance, and give us the words to say, 
so that even if we have to lay down our lives for your sake, we can do it gladly knowing that greater glory waits for us just on the other side. So be with your people. Take us all safely home tonight. Give us a good night's sleep. And then get us up tomorrow and cause us to do good things. Cause us to testify of you to live our life in a way that people inquire about the hope that is within us so we can talk about the God we serve. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.